Hi, this is Tony with We Do Epoxy, and I'm looking for ugly floors. I mean, so ugly, dirt won't stick to it. We can take your ugly garage, basement, porch, or patio and turn it into a work of art in just a couple of days. Is your garage floor so ugly you keep the door closed to prevent anyone from seeing it? We Do Epoxy can fix that. Stop living with ugly concrete. Call me today at 859-582-7920. That's Tony at 859-582-7920. are Trisden and Ray. Having lived and spent time on the coasts and in rural Appalachia, we feel like we have a unique perspective on most topics. Working to find the common sense middle in a country becoming more and more polarized. Welcome to Extreme Common Sense with Trisden and Ray. What's up, Ray? Hello, Trisden. How's it going, man? Good to see you again, brother. Always good to see you, my friend. Pretty cool show today. Another great guest ties in with Halloween, which was just yesterday. Yeah, so we're recording this day after Halloween. Hopefully the show will drop tonight, if not tomorrow. But uh, yeah, this is like the legacy of horror as it's known uh, and just a a fascinating restaurateur, but uh, gentlemanly, nice human being that would come do this podcast with us. So very excited that we're the of, of our guest today. Should we bring him on? Absolutely. Yes, sir. All right. Well, without further ado, uh, Mr. Uh, <laughs> Mr. George C. Romero. And that name What's should up? ring a bell. That name should ring a bell, should it not? <laughs> Indeed. People going, Romero, Romero, where do I know that? Well, George, where do we know you and, and, and your dad from? Well, what's up, Tristan? What's up, Ray? Uh, <laughs> thank you guys for having me here today, man. I'm... Uh, I'm outside. It's a little cold. We're setting up for an event in the restaurant tonight, so it's actually louder inside than it is out here on Main Street. Gotcha. So I hope gotcha. uh, hope the background noise isn't too much. Um, geez, I don't know where where would you know me from? I'm, I uh, I own a restaurant, um, and uh, I, I I knock around Lexington sometimes. No, uh, <laughs> um, both those things are true, but you're probably talking about like the movie stuff. So, the movie uh, stuff. <laughs> well, uh, the the more recognizable name is probably George A. Romero. That's my dad, and then there's me, George C. Um, I think between the two of us, we've got uh, what almost forty movies under our belts uh, before he passed away a few years back, and uh, I've uh, I've written, produced, and directed about twenty three of those, and um, written some comic books with heavy metal magazine, just got a brand new comic book coming out that, uh, it's an anthology comic called spooked. And I wrote sort of the last story in it. I heard it's up for some awards. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, and, uh, I'm just out here in Mount Sterling with this restaurant right now and, uh, called, called, we, we struggled to name it. So we went with Romero's, uh, um, and uh, yeah, so it's good, and and we're doing some exciting stuff with film out here too. I'm working with a group. I teach screenwriting out here at the restaurant on Tuesday nights, and we're working with a lot of the writers from that incubator workshop to uh, get their films and their screenplays actually produced. Uh, we're 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 embarking on the journey of bringing several independent, lower budget film productions here over the next handful of years. So we've uh, we've kicked the ball uh, down the hill with that. And it looks like everything is uh, is moving right along. So a little bit of luck. We'll be in production on our first one early next year. And then there will be several to fall uh, in line after that one. So That's awesome. Sorry. And, and I, I had a, a, another question I was going to lead with. But if you're doing some some movies locally, I mean, who do you have to know to, to, to be an extra in one of those, man? That's phenomenal. I, I don't have a SAG card, but I would pay for one. <laughs> well, you know, excuse me. Uh, to, to quote my dad, I'm taking something for my cough as I smoke my cigarette. Uh, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> uh, um, look, when the time comes, man, there'll be announcements galore. Obviously, the best place to learn about any of that stuff is going to be sort of the Romero's Restaurant um, Facebook page and website. That um, just seems to be kind of where I push out all the information lately because, hey, who doesn't like to get hear about cool stuff and see food porn? So, um, Incredible. <laughs> so that's where we're, we're pushing out a lot of our stuff there. We do a lot of things with local artists here. We've got a book signing 
um, this Saturday on the 4th with a local author named Lacey Chantel. Um, we've got a meeting of the young professionals under 40 here tonight. Um, so, you know, it's a really great community uh, that we've built here out of this restaurant. It's a wonderful community that we're, we were lucky enough to land in the smack smack in the middle of. And um, we're, we're doing as much as we can to try to support local arts, uh, local filmmakers here. And um, so it makes sense that we'll be pushing a lot of the stuff like you're talking about, announcements about extras and being involved in these projects out through our community that we've developed here. Um, and out, you know. outstanding. Yeah. And, and, and George, there's obviously got to be a story uh, in how you landed in Mount Sterling, Kentucky, man. I'd love to hear how that went. Oh, yeah. You know, it's actually I get I get asked that a lot here um, by people uh, when they, because, you know, when we opened the restaurant, we didn't. Like, I didn't run out into Main Street and say, hey, everybody, guess what? I make movies, and now we have a restaurant. We just opened a restaurant and just called it Romero's. And if you walk around the place, there's little evidence here and there. There's, like, a, you know, some memorabilia and things like that. And it took a long time for people to actually kind of start to notice those things. And, you know, um, a lot of them are little, these little 8.5 by 11 drawings of uh, horror characters by an artist friend of mine named Ian Steyer. And um, people would kind of come up to me and say, why do you have, like, I don't, am I allowed to swear? Because I'm having sure. a hard time. Yes, uh, absolutely. Fucking <laughs> 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 <Okay>, George. <laughs> people, people come up to me and be like, why do you have a, a fucking picture of this fucked up looking clown? And, <laughs> and, you know, things like that. And so it, people started to figure it out, and it kind of started to, um, do you need a break? No, no, I'm sorry. Is that for me? Oh, no, that's just you're doing this. He knows, yeah. he knows cues. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so people started noticing, they started noticing a little bit of the horror decorations and then they started asking, you know, what's the connection and, and, you know, I would just talk to people and then, you know, as you would expect, um, people would start to say, wait a minute, Romero, are you related to George? And I would say, well, I am George, but yes, I'm related <laughs> to the one you're thinking of. Um, That's great. Yeah. And so it just kind of organically got out. But I personally landed here. I moved out of L.A., I guess, in 2014. And um, I landed here not long after that. And it's a, it's a story about a girl. You know, I was passing through. I, I left L.A. and I went sort of walk about around the country for a little bit over a year. Um, and, uh, I passed through Lexington and met, uh, met my wife and, uh, she's now my business partner in the restaurant. She's definitely the smarter of the two of us, definitely the prettier of the two of us. And, uh, <laughs> she's the best thing that ever happened to me. And she happened to live here in Mount Sterling. And she said, you want to see where I live? And I said, yeah. And it reminded me of a little town I grew up by, uh, in outside of Pittsburgh. So, uh, it was just, it was like coming home from day one. It's pretty um, part it's of the just, world. It really, it, yeah. It's very nice. Yeah. 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 It's just been a wonderful community of, of welcoming people and, and, and just a great experience to be here as long as I've been here. So, but, you know, for, for a lot of years, I just, I just spent time at the house producing and writing and writing comics all through COVID and all that stuff. And, you know, it was like nobody bothered me. Nobody, you know, I didn't really talk about my movie business life much. And uh, it was nice. And then we put our name on the window of a building at the corner of Main Street in downtown Mount Sterling. And uh, it's, been, it's been one of the hardest things we've ever done. Like I said, I've, I've made 23 movies. And this is harder than probably all of them put together. But uh, <laughs> wow. it's, 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 it's got to be the best thing we've ever done uh, as a couple and, and one of the best things I've ever done in my life. And just the community that we've built and the support that we've gotten locally. Uh, and not even just locally. We have people that, you know, as word has gotten out about what we've done here, we've got people traveling from, um, you know, Tennessee and Indiana. And we had a couple travel from Chicago and Missouri. And we've got people traveling to eat here. So, um, you know, it's it's been one of the more rewarding things in my entire life, actually. That's really cool. Yeah, I know Tristan has eaten there. I haven't had the pleasure yet, but I will take a trip over for sure, George. It's not a not a bad drive from Richmond. And, and Tristan said it was absolutely excellent. I was looking online last night at the menu. It looked fantastic. Um, Thank but, you. But but back to, so your dad, um, you know, 1968 makes Night of the Living Dead, which is literally a classic film. I mean, uh -huh. it's in the Pantheon, right? I mean, everybody knows it. Yeah, it's credited with starting it all. And also he was credited with 
um, redefining how independent films were made because they made it for no money in Pittsburgh with like a handful of people and, you know, some crappy cameras of the time. So, you know, the fact that they got it made and got it out was, uh, it was a, a feat in itself back then when it was really just studio pictures and the world of independent stuff was reserved for more of like the psychedelic, you know, stuff of the times. Right. And, you know, and then he made this and, uh, and it came out and it was, um, it became really important, you know, I mean, you know, I, I think the last time he and I spoke uh, about it, which was a long time ago, um, but we used to talk about it a lot. Um, you know, I, I really believe that I, I don't know that he really set out to, to make something as important as, uh, as it turned out to be. And I think that sure. might be part of the reason that, that it became as important as it did, because it was made from a place of purity as a filmmaker. And, um, you know, the messaging and all of this, all of the, uh, all of the, all of the really important stuff in the film, um, just kind of jived, you know, everything just came together. Yeah. And doing a little bit of reading research, call it what you will. I came across this term, uh, which I know you'll know, uh, gorilla, gorilla film, where basically yeah. your dad was using, as you said, low budget and using what was available to him. Right. And, yeah. and it was you know, pretty unique. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's, you know, that's still a very popular way for uh, independent and, and especially up and coming filmmakers to make movies these days. And that's yeah. something that I that's something that I preach and teach because I get a lot of filmmakers coming to me and saying, hey, I want to do this with my life. What give me advice? You know, what should I do? And I, you know, after I tell them to run away and do something else, um, if, if, they, if they're really committed to it, then, you know, uh, that's exactly what I tell people. I said, get it, you know, get a camera, get some friends, make a movie, tell a story. You know, see if you can do it. That's that's really what it's about. And, you know, even even these big studio guys, they started out doing that. They started sure. out just picking up a camera and making a movie with their friends. That's right. You know, and then they got they got plucked, you know, by the system because that's what how the system works. And right. You know, and there's people who, you know, that's their life goal is to get plucked by the system and be part of that. And then there's other people who are, you know, happy to be on the higher end of indie and then there's other people who are happy to be more on the fringe and there's you know i mean that's the thing and the beautiful thing about horror and one of the, the beautiful and thing about George, horror do, i'm going to ask you a super easy question and then i'll ask you a little bit harder of a question at the exact same time uh, uh first what is your favorite dish at romero's <laughs> and secondly it felt like you didn't want to associate yourself with the zombie genre for a very long time. And now it feels like you finally found the right project with rise. I'd like to hear mm -hmm. what allowed you to come to that decision to say, okay, I'm going to put on, I'm going to put dad's shoes on just a little bit here. Sure. Yeah. 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 Well, first of all, um, my favorite dish here is the chicken piccata. Um, we spent uh, a very long time. Actually it's tied between the chicken piccata and our Roman puttanesca. One of the things about our restaurant is that uh, we're all organic. Everything is chef prepared. We don't own a microwave. Um, uh, we, we literally get the finest ingredients we can find. And we've got professional chefs in the kitchen making your meal when you order it. So nothing is from frozen. Um, nothing is, you know, we even butcher a lot of our meat here. Uh, we make some of our own pasta noodles here. Um, you know, we're, we're as from scratch as a restaurant can be. Um, and uh and we love that and we're a small 55 seat venue so um you know it's really a great experience to come here but our roman puttanesca is done very much in the style of the italian countryside like homes you would find in the italian countryside uh and our chicken piccata i would put up against uh, the best chicken piccata i've had in the country um it took months of development on that by the way uh just to get it perfect but i think it's absolutely perfect with regard to your second question that's also actually a pretty easy answer. Um, I don't think anybody who follows in their parents' footsteps um, wants to just be a carbon copy, um, you know. And uh, and so the thing about horror movies and the thing about being George's oh. kid was that Did George uh, drop out on us? Everybody wanted me to make a, a zombie movie, so oh, that was the easy. That was that was like the low hanging fruit. Um, so. Uh, because of that, I didn't, I didn't take the low hanging fruit. I just didn't want to fuck with it. Um, it was, it was zombies were my dad's thing, and, you know, and 
I had my own stories mm. to tell and I had my own way I wanted to tell them. So I did that for a long time. And then finally, one day back in about, I guess, 09, somebody asked me, um, asked me the question in a different way. They said, look, we know you don't want to make a zombie movie, but if you did, what would that zombie movie be? And nobody had ever asked it to me that way. And for some reason, it like knocked me in the head and I said, give me a week. And I went home and I wrote Rise. I wrote the first draft of Rise, uh, what I call the vomit draft. And um, then I went back and I read through it and I realized, well, I can't blow up the state of Pennsylvania because they need it for night. If Rise is going <laughs> to take place prior to night, then uh, I can't, you know, I can't do this. I can't do that because uh, I, I needed to pay attention to the, the, the canon that was pre-established. Uh, and so Rise was born and I spent years refining it. Uh, I spent years making sure that it was paying the proper respect and attention um, to the giant on, uh, on, 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 on whose shoulders it was going to stand. Um, and uh, I turned it into, you know, a, a real epic prologue origin story that takes place over a six year period prior to any of my dad's stories. Um, and, uh, and then I wanted to go do it as a comic book first. And then, you know, all the conversations and all of the meetings out in LA, they circle around stuff like, uh, you know, well, we should do it as a movie. We should do it as a series. We should do it as anything except what you think we should do it as. And, uh, so finally, uh, after years of kind of deflecting that and kind of sticking to my guns and, you know, going down and exploring all the different roads, but ultimately sticking to my guns. Um, I met with the new CEO of heavy metal several years back, just before COVID. And um, Heavy Metal wanted it, and it was a wonderful home for it. So that's how uh, Rise circled back to being what I wanted it to be in the very first place, which was uh, released as a series. Um, and through Heavy Metal, I mean, what a, what a brand, what an iconic brand to be associated with. So uh, anyway, there you go. There's your two answers. Awesome. Great. Yeah, George, uh, with Rise of the Living Dead, is that uh, where it's at with Heavy Metal? is it something you can actually stay in that dead verse for a long time? And is that what you'd like to do? Or do you see yourself sort of wrapping it sooner than later? Where, where do you see it going? Oh, well, first of all, it's just called rise. It's not, it's called the rise. Um, oh, okay. excuse me. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, it's fine. There's been all kinds of speculation on the internet and everything. About that. Okay. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I can say the entrance is on the corner. Um, a lot of people try to go in our art. Nah. <laughs> That's um, cool. So, uh, no, no, it's definitely the dead versus, uh, it's, it's massive. So the rise is a kickoff point. Um, and, uh, there's, there's a lot that's going to come out of it. I think, uh, I think fans are going to be thrilled with it. They're going to love the respect with which the project is being done. Um, and I think for, for new fans of zombies, who might be too young to to realize you know sort of like what my father did and all that stuff i think it's it's a great landing pad for new fans as well so um and i'm, I'm actively in talks um about expanding the dead verse um i didn't have a chance to sort of speak with my my producing team prior to this so i'm not i don't have a lot that i can really say about it but i can tell you we're actively developing uh, now that the strike is uh, coming to a close, we've moved into active development on a feature film, um, followed up by another feature film, a series, um, and a bunch of more stuff. So it's actually man, outstanding. Cool. Yeah, I'm pretty very cool. I'm pretty proud of it. But I feel very you know I wake up every day full of gratitude over it because this is one of those projects that I've been to, I've been working on for what almost 15 years trying to get it done the right yeah. way and. You know, there's some, it's so easy with so many projects to just say, yeah, I can bend or I can, you know, this can happen that way, or I can do it your way or, but with this project, it's too important to the, to, to, to the past and it's too important to the future for me to have done that. So, you know, I kind of had to stick to my guns for a long time on this one. And, uh, I, I wake up grateful every day that, uh, that we found the team that we found that we're, uh, nice. we're moving forward with it. Yeah. Very cool. And George, I've got a question here from uh, one of my uh, TV producers at WBON. He wanted me to find out uh, Night of the Living Dead went 
public domain. Mm-hmm. How did how did that affect you guys? I mean, was that something that was supposed to happen, or was that? Uh, I'll let you tell the story, but it being in public well, domain, of, I mean, it feels like you guys should still be getting paid for that. Well, that's the problem with public domain, right? I don't think I don't think any of those original guys ever saw a dime off of it because of that. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, it is what it is, and you know, I, I've said for years, like. The official story, I'm not really positive what the official story is. I just know that it's in the public domain. And, um, and that's, that's fact and that's final. Um, you know, uh, I, it had to have been hard on the original guys. Um, it had to be a lot harder on them than they went on. Um, I kind of look at it a little bit differently, you know. Um, one of the side effects of being an independent film producer is you do a lot of your own marketing, right? So, um, and I've been, you know, I've done a bunch of startups and things like that. So there was a time in my life when I got, uh, I had to learn like computer coding, right? Like programming and stuff so that I could build websites and all that jazz, you know? And, um, I used to program in this open source language called PHP. Um, the language itself isn't the important part of the metaphor here, but what is important is the open source, right? Like, um, what those guys did when that when night fell into the public domain, what they did and what, I don't know if, if they realized that or who realized it or when it, you know, maybe it was just me, but you know, they created an open source creature, you know, at the time you had universal monsters, right? You had, um, you know, vampires and mummies and werewolves and all this stuff. And it was also locked down by copyright and you had all these horror fans. And then here comes these guys and they make this movie and it goes out of the public domain with this monster called a zombie. And all all of a sudden, there's no consequences for young filmmakers to go out and practice special effects makeup, making zombies. There's no consequences for young filmmakers to go out and make zombie movies in their backyard. There's no consequences for people to write songs or books or government documents on how to survive the zombie apocalypse or any of that stuff, right? And so the way I view it is they created this open source creature that allowed literally hundreds of thousands of artists to like practice their craft and learn something. You know, Tom Savini did a lot of his makeup effects back then. And Tom was great. You know, he was the kind of guy that if somebody really wanted to learn what he did and learn how he did it, they could find him, call him up and ask him a question and he would tell him. You know, and they'd say, Hey, how'd you do this? And he'd sit on the phone with them and be like, well, I got it. This is the stuff I got. This is how I did it. Um, you know, and he would teach people that way, you know, but you'd have to find him in like a magazine or you'd have to find him in some interview with my dad or something. And, um, you know, but if you could get to him, he would teach you. And so, you know, there was this perfect storm of like, you know, knowledge being passed around in the middle of this world of, um, open source creatures. And so we've got poems and dances and movies and music videos and uh, filmmakers and spinoffs, copycats, and, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of zombie movies out there. Uh, right. That were only made possible because Night of the Living Dead landed in the public domain. Mm, and cool. I, I think that's kind of beautiful. It is. It's such a positive way to look at it. I mean, I'm sure, you know, folks. Well, yeah, in, in that I mean, if you look at it any other way, you're going to go crazy. You know, they maybe didn't make as much money, but. Never. <laughs> Fair. But um, yeah, that is a beautiful way to look at money it. Is it's everything. so cool that, uh, that, that, you know, so many just people not, are just it's, um, helpful and awesome about it. It's just so phenomenal. I think, uh, you know, I think just what it's, what it's done and what it's contributed to pop culture and to the world, I think, is is more important than any paycheck anybody could have ever got. Very true. Yeah. So, George, you've got a bit of a history in, in marketing yourself. You mentioned marketing. Uh, how has that helped you as a writer and uh, as a producer? Uh, well, I think the short answer um, is that it gave me a perspective, um, you know, to add on top of like what was already kind of a unique perspective, you know, um, growing up around movie sets, making my own movies, being on movie sets on and off most of my life. Um, you know, and then getting into the, the, uh, marketing of it all, um, entrances on the corner. Yeah. Um, 
you know, getting into the marketing of it all, it streamlines your knowledge. Um, one of the things that people used to accuse my dad of was not being commercially minded. And so, you know, to combat that early on, I decided I was going to go into advertising. Uh, there's, there's nice. no better way to, to, to break a, a non-commercial mind than to put it into a commercial setting. Um, and, but I think that it just streamlined everything. It, it, it allows me to look at production while I'm writing a story. So, you know, the way I teach screenwriting and what I teach my students is, um, that, you know, a screenplay is not, it's not as much of a creative document as it is a set of instructions for the people who are going to make the move. Uh, yes, it obviously has to read creatively and it has to read like a story, but at the end of the day, when you go to make your movie and you have your funding, a hundred, 200, 300 people show up to make a movie. They need a set of stereo instructions to follow. And that's basically actual purposes. So if you think about writing a screenplay, if I sit down and I write a movie and then I put it out in the world, you're not going to go, you guys aren't going to go pay to sit in a theater and read a script. You're going to go sit in a theater to watch a movie. So the movie that you guys pay to go watch has to come out of the document that you pass around to 300 people. Um, you all show up to do a different part of the, a different job and a different part of the movie. So, and rarely uh, are a lot of them even there together. So, so, you know, I think that I, oh, just to wrap up that answer, I think, um, I think that, uh, you know, marketing and advertising really helped me streamline a lot of that process. Nice. And George, do you have a favorite, uh, bit of work from your dad and from yourself, like looking back over your career, is there something that you're most proud of that you did and something also that your dad did that you just really, really, you know, is your favorite? Yeah. I mean, like with my dad, it's gotta be between Martin and the crazies. Um, those are my two favorites of his for sure. Although night riders no is up there. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of hard, you know, I'm biased. Um, sure. Regarding me, uh, I think the thing I'm most proud of is just surviving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was know, it, was uh, it hard growing up like that? I mean, in, yeah. in Hollywood? Well, I mean, I grew up between Pittsburgh and L.A., so, um, I mean, it was no harder than growing up anybody else's song, you know. It's just uh, I didn't really get into... I guess I made my first feature when I was 17, 18, 18? no, 19, something like that. Um, but then after that, I just went around and I worked on a lot of movies under my mom's name. Um, you know, so no, I mean, it wasn't like, it wasn't tough. I, I think the hardest part was, you know, just the assumptions that people made when they did find out who my father was. It, right. The assumptions that would, like, oh, I'm sitting on some mountain of Romero money or daddy handed <laughs> me this job or, you know, when, and none of that was true, you know, like I earned every job I ever got. I kept every job because I worked my ass off and, um, yeah, no, he never, never did anything like that for me. So, gotcha. um, you know, I think, uh, and I thank him for it. You know, I thank him for it. Again, right. it adds to my gratitude because I've, I've worked with and met plenty of offspring of other people who did have uh, shit handed to them. And right. thank God I didn't turn out like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It, and you know, it's just like anything else. I mean, people give actors and people in Hollywood a hard time, you know, for doing what their parents did, but you know, everybody does that. It just so happens yeah. that, you know, it's kind of a glamorous, you know, job that, you know, the higher ups tend to make a lot of money, but you know, if your dad's a coal miner, there's a good chance you're going to be a coal miner over anything else. So I've always thought that some of that anger is just kind of completely misplaced because like, of course sure. you're going to do what you know, and I'll be the first to say, like, I would have just changed my name to, you know, to George A. Romero, the whole, like um, from day one. So good. I mean, good on you for really trying to blaze, blaze your own path. I mean, I would have wore a picture of my dad on a t-shirt every day on set unquestionably. So good for you, man, for one to blaze yeah. your own path. And it's phenomenal what you've done with with well, your career you, so so good for you thank you and thank and you, you have one hell of a restaurant also so yeah. how about that yeah <laughs> yeah you got a you ain't here you got to come out ray we'll feed you good i absolutely will george you have my word i'm looking forward to it all right me and too. i know yeah. uh, uh yes and absolutely ray we'll maybe double date we'll, we'll hit yeah. up romero soon and absolutely. uh and george i know you've got a hard out you've got some stuff going on there at, at the restaurant so mm -hmm. I, I don't want to keep you in uh 
and, and make you late for any of this. So, Ray, do you, you have anything else before we let George No, I just off? want to thank you, George. It was very, very interesting. You made some great points. It's, it's, it was a really fun time. Thank you guys very much, and thank you guys for yeah. having me on. I re- it really means the world to me that you were interested. So, uh, yeah. you know, again, I, I just, just you know, wake up with gratitude, man, and, and things happen. You know, I think that's this is fantastic. very cool. Amazing. Yeah, yeah that's great. Yeah. Thank you so much, right. George. Thank you, guys. Have a great night. You too. George, take Thanks. care. All right, later. Later. And again, make sure that hits 100%, if you would, George, before you X out. Sweet. So what's up, Ray? Hello, Trisdome. That was, that was pretty fun, right? What a cool guy. Yeah, pretty interesting guy. Yeah, we definitely have to go over and check his restaurant out. That's too cool. Yeah, and just how friendly. I, and again, you know, I, I, I know I tend to be, I don't know if kiss up is the right word, but I love that people like George, you know, who have this, you know, cool history in Hollywood. They're just so friendly to come on and, and just hang out. It just always kind of warms my heart that people are just so awesome. Generally, I'm, I'm a big believer in most people are good. And I, I, yeah, think, too. And I think this too. podcast always kind of echoes that more often than not. So it's oh, just I, really, absolutely. really cool. And I wonder, uh, is it there a connection? You know this probably better than I do. Is it there a connection with like Cynthiana, Kentucky and uh, Walking Dead? Do you know that? Oh, man, I, I haven't heard that. I know they film mostly in Atlanta or outside think, in Georgia. So, yeah, I haven't heard. I think maybe one of the writers grew up in Cynthiana. Okay. So uh, he and George might have to get together at some point. Very true. And, and you know, and again, that is... We talked about, you know, Night of the Living Dead being public domain. Look, if there was no Night of the Living Dead, there's certainly no Walking Dead. I mean, before right. George A. Romero released that movie, zombies weren't like that. Like the zombie that we know today is directly because of what his dad produced on the screen in 1968. Right. So, yeah. Right. And I don't know. Go ahead. And if you reason, you know, we've all seen that movie, the old black and white, and you can look at it as a, you know, a silly horror film introducing, like you say, a new character, this zombie, or you can look at it from some of the social aspect, which we didn't get into with George, but I'm sure he would have spoken to it. Uh, you know, it was one of the first film. It featured the the protagonist was an African American gentleman, as you remember, sure, um, which was pretty groundbreaking, and he has a very untimely death in that movie which they said was George Romero's way of showing how, you know, terribly black folks were being treated at that time. I mean, 68 was a crazy year with everything that was going on, you know, the assassinations and such. And the movie does, does mirror some of society's ills of that time. Well, that's fascinating. And and I wasn't aware of that, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, I I don't know what the term would be, but like, it's shocking to see for lack of a better word, you know, you're putting on this old black and white film and yeah, the protagonist is a black man. You're like, well, man, how ahead of its time is a movie like that? I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, it had to be one of a kind, certainly in 1968. Yes. So it really was very cool. And I'll I'll say this too. (laughs) I don't know how commonplace it was, but having watched the movie recently, uh, there's sort of the first female, I guess she's the female that sort of starts the movie with her brother at the graveyard if you're familiar and she just she's really struggling like obviously she's just seen zombies so like the whole portion of her in the movie like she's just sort of in shock but there's there's this part in the movie which is fairly early on where she just is not making any sense and and the guy just grabs her and slaps the shit out of her and i just think i wonder how and not not a race thing but just a man slapping a woman like that like I, I bet that was looked at quite a bit differently in 1968 than it, you know, that's a pretty rough lens in 2023 Certainly. to see some woman that just sort of is really going through it. And he's like, whack, you know, here's a big slap to the face. And, you know, like everything else, you look at stuff through the glasses of 2023 and, you know, we all become like a little bit woke or whatever, but like that was kind of fascinating. I wonder if given a rewrite today, if that stays in the film or if, or if that goes. Yeah, that no, that goes. But does but did the movie? Uh, you had you seen it prior to viewing it ahead of this interview? Yes, but it's been twenty five years. I Me couldn't too. have told you anything Me about too. it. Yeah. So did it hold up? Absolutely. I, I yeah, would say it was cool. a really good movie to be. Yeah, you know that's cool. 
Yeah. So that was 60 ish years ago. I would say George wasn't even alive. that We just spoke with. No, I don't with, think he was. I think he was more in like 71 too. Yeah. yeah. So, he, so he just sort of missed out on that, but, uh, yeah, man, it was, it, it really held up. It, and I think that's one of the things with a lot of old movies, you'll watch something from, from back then. And it's like, oh man, this is so boring. You're not very good. But yeah, I thought it held up really well. And I would say the only thing that I thought that, that kind of caught me was just a little bit of the violence among the kind of surviving humans in the cabin just seemed a little excessive him slapping the lady. There's a guy that's sort of hiding out, uh, you know, in the basement. And I think the protagonist kind of punches him a couple times and you're like, man, that's it. Even though there's certainly no shortage of violence in film today. Like, uh, I guess I was kind of, I, I noticed that. So again, I don't know that it, that it didn't have a place. I thought it did. And the movie held up phenomenally, but you definitely notice, like, man, you know, I don't know if people just handle stuff like that anymore. Yeah, and I think that was one of George Romero's things. I think he wanted to make a film that didn't uh, it didn't necessarily glorify violence, but it didn't shy away from it. You know, it was because yeah. uh, there's two ways to look back at that time, which is kind of weird if you think about it. One is that you're right, smacking a woman would be, I don't want to say more commonplace, but I think more commonplace certainly than it would be today. At the same time sort of that Puritan ethic ran a little bit deeper. So it was like a sort of a weird dichotomy. And I think George Romero was trying to, to point that out. But I think about that Tristan with something like the honeymooners, which I don't know how familiar you are with it. You know, I laughed my ass off at that show as a kid. Does not hold up at all because <laughs> that loud mouth jack off who just treats his friends terribly. He's always threatening his wife with physical violence. I mean, right. that's not playing today, you know? Yeah. It's just not. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I, I don't know. I don't think I referenced this on the show, but uh, there's this great video of Barbara Walters interviewing uh, who was Indiana Jones's dad, the actor that played Indiana Jones' oh, uh, father, Sean, Sean Connery. Connery. Yeah. yeah. So Sean Connery's in an interview with Barbara Walters, and this is circa, I would guess, 1980-ish. Mm. And she says, you previously said that, you know, it's okay to smack a woman with an open hand. She kind she kind of was like, you know, I've got you now. Like, you know, you've said this previously. You're on record. Do you still stand behind this? And he was like, uh, yeah, you know, I don't think that's the first option. You know, first you reason with them. And if they're still going to, you know, continue to talk back or whatever, then you got to give them a smack. And I just thought, Jesus Christ, like, is that where we were as a society in 1980 that you could go on TV? And like, not only was he not canceled, I think he works, you know, right up until, you know, 90 plus years old. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, he was a pretty damn good James Bond. He was a great actor, but you know, nobody goes on TV today and says, Oh, yeah, I smack my wife around if she's, you know, doesn't listen the first time. And, you know, and then you you don't get another job. I mean, you saw the kind of the shit that Will Smith got for his smack and, you know, like just canceled by the industry. So imagine, you know, this A list Hollywood actor saying, Oh, yeah, sometimes you just give the ladies a smack and give them a smack. Unbelievable. just a That's different not time. what your mother said, Trebek. <laughs> that was a funny bit. But you know what's funny, Tristan? So I uh, have never seen Mad Men. I, I, no, no reflection of the show. I just, you know, I'm, I still haven't seen The Matrix, Tristan. So I've, I've oh been sheltered, you know? Yeah. But uh, my brother, I don't know. Were you a Mad Men watcher? Mad Men watcher? I'm familiar with it. I have not either yet watched that. And yeah, I would so like I'm to. Familiar, right. So I'm familiar with it as, as we all are. But Tommy... I don't know how many episodes or seasons he may have watched, but I remember him saying to me, you know, and that was set in the early 60s, right? It was really the JFK years, yeah. kind of, uh, you know, Mickey Mantle, if you will, in the world of sports. I've read a right. Mickey Mantle biography called uh, The Last Boy Standing, meaning that Mickey was the kind of the last one to take advantage of all of that, where you could smack a woman on the ass and you cheated on your wife and you fucking drank every night and on and on and on. And obviously ended Mickey Mantle's life early because didn't treat him so well. Right. But, you know, Mad Men was very reflective of that Kennedy era, right, where men read everything and and they did what they wanted. I mean, apparently John F. Kennedy's philandering was the stuff of legend. But I remember Tommy saying, you know, if the world really was like that, I didn't really, it didn't enamor me. I wasn't enamored of it. It, it kind of struck me as very... <laughs> you know, obviously very sexist and, and, and very male dominated and, you know, so on and so forth. He's pretty broad minded dude. And, um, so yes, we have progressed from that. I mean, 
Are those instincts still there? Do guys still talk about that shit? They probably do, but they don't act on it like they once did. Yeah, I, I certainly have that feeling. I mean, does, you know, bad sexist, you know, type of the hippies, you know, dominated. Tristan, type. for all the shit you want to give hippies, the hippies changed a lot of stuff. Yeah, that's true. And yeah, I definitely think society has moved into a much better, you know, space as far as our expectation and how we treat women and, you know, they're equal well, and not, you know, we're going to smack you until you agree with this type of a lifestyle. So, yes. well, as I've often said to you and on this show, you know, to me, the whole advent of political correctness was to remove the N word from the American lexicon, if you will, the American vocabulary. And, you know, I was born in 1960. So by 1967, eight, I'm pretty aware of what's going on around me. And I can tell you, Tristan, and that's, you know, another 12 years until you're born. Um, that word was used all the time. Now, my dad didn't really not use that word. I don't remember dad now when he, with his buddies and told a joke, might he have? Yeah, but I remember my next door neighbor, Ben Zangara, uh, my Uncle Eddie, they would use that word. And, and many, 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 many others would use that word the way you and I would use, you know, whatever, talking to each other now. And, um, and, and that changed, you know, I, I don't know when that changed, 70s, 80s. Um, my brother tells a story about Jimmy Benarski, who was just a working blue collar guy from our hometown. They were in the local shot and beer joint called Gunners. And Patrick Ewan was playing for the Knicks at the time. And they had the game on back then. It was one small screen that you watched, right? There weren't sports bars, but the Knicks were playing. And this guy that they didn't know. So they softball team, they'd always go out to Gunners. Gunners sponsored them and they'd have some beers afterwards and they're watching and and patrick does something and this guy they don't know says can you believe that n-word and and jimmy says completely serious uh we don't use that word here and the guy thought he was joking and he kind of you know ha ha and he was like no we don't use that word here it's probably 1985 so wow. you know good for jimmy and it was starting to change a little bit then if that's 1965 tristan nobody says that to that guy in the bar yeah. Oh, no question. And and I'm sure there's still corners of, of everywhere in America that you still find that word being maybe a little bit more commonplace. But, you know, I grew up in the early 80s in an all white town, and it was certainly not out of the question to, to walk into a, a store or something. And, you know, two from an aisle over, you hear the, the N word fairly commonplace. And, and luckily, I mean, and, and you really don't know. Well, you don't. But Unless don't you're know. in my basement. Unless you're in my basement. <laughs> Or you're in my car when I'm singing Tupac, but that that's neither here nor there, nor is it racist in my firm opinion. But it, it is fascinating, and it is one of those things. Like if I ever hear that word, and you know, maybe once every five or seven years, somebody will pull it out, and you're like, Jesus Christ, man! It just yeah. sounds, you know, because I not that it ever Terribly sounds out of good, place, but, it, right? but it it sounds so bad now, and I, I'm yeah. so glad that that's where it's at, right? Like, it's just nice that that's- hundred percent. And yeah. and I don't think there's a person out there, Tristan, fucking David Duke himself, <laughs> who wouldn't say that's a good thing. That's a good thing that we did. And, and that's where I say we get so lost in all this because now political correctness is just the worst thing. And those people on the left are so crazy and they're, you know, and there is some of that. It all went too far. But to me, where it started was to get that particular word out of the American vocabulary. And it was marvelously successful. Yeah. And, and because I bridged that gap of when it was used all the time to, to now. And you're exactly right. It sounds very out of place now. Or, or back to Jimmy Benarski, it's that times 10. You will be admonished if you use that word. And rightly so. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a much better place to be. Now, I always wonder, because, you know, I came from a very poor corner of very rural you? Appalachia. I know I don't mention it on the show, typically, but I wonder. You know, I'm you from know, New Jersey. Say what? <laughs> but <laughs> is, the, is the word not used as much, or are we just in better company now? No, it's not used as much. You don't think? Much. Okay. No. Well, certainly not as much. But, yeah. yes. Uh, yeah, that's that's dumb and true. Definitely not as much, but. I don't go to the types of places maybe that I would have when I would have heard it more often. So I wonder if there isn't still those pockets. Hopefully not. I, oh, yeah, probably. But I even the rednecks in our bar. Fuck, Tristan. That word is just not used like it was. It just is not. Yeah. That's awesome. And that's great. Yeah, I agree. Because it is, yeah. a, you know, 
and I can't tell you why. You have to speak to a linguist, you know, Noam Chomsky or someone like that to tell you how words, because they're only words, you know, Trisden, uh, Trisden, Jesus, there you go. George Is that Garland. the N word? <laughs> that's a good, no. Yeah, that's what I say now. Trisden. Instead of the N word, those effing uh, Trisdens. No, Carlin used to say, or no, it wasn't even Carlin. It was Lenny Bruce who wrote Fuck. He's, there's a book where, or a piece that Lenny Bruce wrote, and he had written Fuck like 300 times. And he said, you know, by the time you've, you've written it that much, it starts to lose its meaning. And what, why does it, why do people find it so offensive? Now, there, there's probably it. Okay, so you want to talk about a switch, Tristan? If you go back to the 60s, you didn't hear that word. I remember my same uncle, Eddie, who would drop the N-word, getting upset one time when somebody used fuck around him. Let's talk about an irony. And he was like, amazing. That, that word doesn't need to be used. You know, you'd never hear that room, that, that word in a boardroom anywhere. Well, you would now. It's used yeah. ubiquitously, if you will. Right. So Indeed. in that sense, things kind of changed a little bit. But I don't know why certain words, be it the N word, the C word that rhymes with runt, where you'd call a woman that, uh, <laughs> a couple other words, emote the way that they do, but they do. And you have to be aware of that. Yeah. No, and, and again, I, I think probably in a decade we'll find that some of the wokeness even today that some of us, you know, the old guys like me and you may roll our eyes at a little bit. You know, in 10 or 15 years, we'll be saying, yeah, that was for the best, too. Like, you know, I sure. think the tra transgender folks get a lot of shit now in, in different situations. But Most of it from Dave Chappelle. Almost all exclusively from Dave Chappelle. But, I, you know, I think ultimately if the goal is that people can just live and be happy and, you know, that should ultimately be the goal. It doesn't affect us if somebody wants to be to have a specific pronoun or to, you know, to be called. A no, exactly. Thing. And, and again, exactly. I think going back to a very early show when we had Brandon on, I think kind of the the rule on some of this stuff is, you know, almost almost all of it goes away if you're just not trying to be an asshole. And, and I think, yeah, you do see people kind of online that are just so exceptionally far left and so exceptionally woke. That stuff is more on Twitter, I think, than in real life. It's very rare that in real life you encounter somebody that's like, you know, just excessively, you know, I want nine month abortions. There's, you know, some of this stuff that they pin on woke left, you know, folks. So the, what do they call virtue signaling and all that yeah. kind of nonsense. Yeah, exactly. So that's something yeah. that Fox News finds those examples once every three months and then they just hug it for a year and they pretend that that's death. all Democrats and, you know, and that stuff's just you know, not true at all. At least, Feed you know, on, on a, yeah, on a general scale, man, some sad news this week. Fucking sad about Matthew Perry. Matthew Perry. Yeah. Yeah. That was definitely more your era than mine. I, you know, with no disrespect to Matthew or any of the other cast members, I just never found the show funny. Now go back to Kevin uh, from last week, uh, uh, McCarthy, uh, McCaffrey, Kevin McCaffrey, a comedian who was on with us. And he said, Hey, you know, comedy is pretty personal. If you don't find, if you find it funny, then it's funny. And if you don't, it's, you don't, but you can't convince people. Otherwise I tried my best with friends, just never found the show funny, but yeah, far too young to lose Matthew Perry. And do you think, yeah, you figure he had put that stuff behind him. You know, when you read about someone drowning in a bathtub, you have to wonder, right. But you know, by stuff, I mean, there's his drug use and so forth. Right. Well, you know, I just read his autobiography six months ago. Um, you know, definitely a troubled guy, definitely, yeah. you know, one of those people that I, I think you kind of meet two types of people in recovery for substance abuse. It's like the guy or the lady that will say you're always in recovery and you always right. are going AA and it's just always a part of their life. Right. And then I think you meet people that are like, yeah, you know, I was a bad alcoholic when I was younger, you know, I had a kid or this life change happened and Ben, I just haven't wanted it 30 years. And definitely Matthew Carey, Carried. Matthew Perry fell into that earlier category that he wore that around and he needed people around him and he you know constantly had to be cautious because he was just so easily to sort of fall back in, into that and you know it had several relapses and yeah to your point I mean it certainly feels hopefully not but it definitely feels like you know maybe something went wrong in his recovery more so than yeah he slipped and fell in his hot tub which I guess is possible but it's possible. But yeah. so you read his autobiography. Was he a user during Friends? He was a user during Friends, but never during the tapings of Friends. Ah. So he, he was clean. He according to him, he was always clean on the show. He would go back and forth to drinking like gallons of vodka a day. And he said, if you'll watch the show when he's fat, he's drinking too much alcohol. 
when he would lose the weight and he would be excessively skinny, then he was on, you know, pills. So it's, wow. it's funny, like when you watch the episodes and you'll see him, he's a little bigger, you know, he's on an alcohol, you know, binge. And then when he, he you know, gets super skinny, but yeah, just really sad because uh, just, uh, even if you didn't maybe find him hilarious or the show hilarious, like definitely a talented, you know, talented guy. And well, super, I, kinda, I mean, the show's, I, yeah, the show's yeah. iconic, but I remember seeing him on maybe when he wrote, wrote that autobiography with more. And he was talking about going to fucking open houses in the yes. Hollywood area and, yeah. and going rifling through people's medicine cabinets, for Christ's sake. Yeah. Because so, he made a joke at him. He's like, people were like, was that Chandler who just left with the bottle of pills, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, it, it definitely, life was not easy for him, you know, even no. from a pretty young age, according to his book. And, and, he, and he was a, a charmed life. I mean, he came from a fair amount of money and, and always mm. lived a, a pretty good life, but was just never really comfortable in his own skin. I think he was at least according to his book, kind of getting a little closer to finding that and had been sober for a few years, but you never know. Well, that point back to our friend, George Romero. Uh, and I don't know what his dad was worth. Tris in public domain and so forth. Maybe his dad didn't make a whole lot of money, but I'm, I assume he was not, you know, not worried about his, his next meal. But um, I, have not been anywhere near the strata of him and nor the company that I've kept or the people I've been around, but the few that I do know who were, you know, privileged children who were uh, trust fund babies, whatever, whatever. I kind of take his point. Like, I'm glad that never did happen to me. We all want to think that, Oh, it's so great and easy. Those people have a lot of problems. It's, it's to True. me. And I, it's only my opinion. I could be wrong, but it seems like if you come out quote unquote normal from that upbringing, it's it's the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, it really does. I mean, especially when there's fame and money involved, right? Like, because yeah. even money, I think probably we all want to think that money just solves a lot of problems. And to a degree, there is some of that. But then there's a point where it also becomes the problem. And, you know, if you've got a parents that are, you know, gone three months at a time working, I mean, it's probably hard to be raised as a child when your mom or dad is producing movies you know, three months and then home for a couple of months and then gone again. Like, you know, it's just an infinite amount of, of, uh, issues that you can have dealing with, with stuff like that. So no, I mean, yeah. it is easy, especially as somebody who, as I have mentioned, grew up very poor to think that, man, the answer was just a whole bunch of money, but no, I don't think so at all. And certainly throwing fame into the mix. I mean, man, there's just so many issues that come with that, that, you know, we luckily will never experience. Although at this age with some maturity, I would love to find out how that uh, a lot of money would feel, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I well, don't envy a lot of those kids. I saw a quote from Bill Gates years back and I thought it was pretty cool. That said, I'd like to give my children enough money to do something, but I will not give them enough money to do nothing. Yes. And, and I will say that the people that I've, I don't want to use the word jealous because I'm more happy for everybody. You know, I, I, I don't begrudge people necessarily, but I've always said like, the people that really had the legs up with, in my mind, with parents and with life, you know, were the kids whose parents had enough money. And again, this wasn't like most, or you didn't see it a lot, but you know, you're married and your parents buy you your starter home. So you're yeah. kind of getting a house right. with, right. you know, so then you do have, there's freedom to lose your job and go find something else. You own your right. own house. I've always said like, if, if there's one thing that you could, you know, if you're rich and you could do that for your kids, I mean, that's a, hell of an advantage to start out your life and not have to worry about that. But you know, hundred percent and but much you know, more than and, that. Yeah. You don't want to give, like you said, the freedom to not work. I have never, uh, been enamored of material things. Unlike you, I've never been driven by money, but as I've gotten older, I understand it's importance. It's a survival tool. And I also understand Trizen, There is no nobility in poverty. When you're having to decide every month between paying the fucking, uh, in, you know, paying your car insurance, your auto loan, your mortgage, and which one am I going to skip this month? That just wears your ass out. You know, yeah. it's just a miserable existence and there's not a Scotia nobility in poverty. And I've always said, you know, about Patty and I, we're fortunate that we are, um, you know, not some distance from a long, long way from wealthy, but fortunately, some distance from paycheck to paycheck, which to me is all, all you can ask. That's 
you know, nice place to find yourself. Would I like to be able to drop $20,000 on a European vacation? Sure. It would be cool. But am I losing sleep over the fact that I can't? No, nor am I losing sleep over the fact that I can't pay the mortgage. So to me, that's all you can ask out of life, right? I would completely agree. Yeah. I mean, yeah, of course we'd all like certainly as we retire or get, get, you know, hit 70 years old to be able to, you know, blow up hundred grand and, and do some of those things you've always wanted to do. But yes, right. to your point, being really poor really sucks because it, it is amazing yeah. that, you know, it, it becomes the focus, right? Like there's just not much to focus on when you're trying to decide if you can afford, you know, food and air conditioning for the month. You know, I spent, yeah. yeah. Bulk of my childhood with no HVAC, no air conditioning and, you know, part of my childhood with no running water. And so, yeah, you really, you do appreciate things. And, and to my discredit, you know, as, as I've gotten older and, you know, have formed myself firmly in the, uh, middle class like i do find myself trying to almost reward myself for being so poor by never telling myself no now if i want something that's a little bit expensive yeah, I've noticed. And that's, that's not you may have you may have noticed that ray but uh but you know it's it's not a thing that i you know wear now, a badge of honor for sure here here's my only here, here's my only gripe and this is very sincere Tristan, and i could name five people i won't but i could and, and i'm sure you could I begrudge, I begrudge no one their wealth because, again, I'm not a, a person who's lived with a lot of envy, whatever. That's fantastic. Whether you, however you came upon it, if you work for it, that's probably better. But if you inherited whatever, and if you're cool about it, then that's, then that's great. But what I really have little, little, little tolerance for and does really, it's one of my pet peeves and gets under my skin. And again, I off air, we could agree on three different people. Um, <laughs> is our wealthy people who bemoan where they're at. Fuck you. Oh, yes. Oh, it's just so difficult and this and that. And you know what, you know, I, I just, I'm sorry. That's, I, I don't even have to say anymore because you know what I mean. Oh, 1 million percent. I, <laughs> poor, poor me, you know, the my 8% taxes that I have to pay while my workers are paying 30%. Like, oh, I'm so sorry your life is so hard. No, I, I'm with you. And, and I think it all comes back to the to the one word, which is appreciation. And you saw it so much with our, our friend George, who was just on the show. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it, it is a little sickening because you do meet people with literally nothing who are very appreciative of what they have. I, you know, I grew up with nothing and was very appreciative of what I had. And so, sure. yeah, when you see people who, you know, happen to be millionaires who are very, I don't know, disillusioned and, and also that don't want to give anyone credit except themselves. Like they right. somehow just magically, you know, formed the, you know, wealth. Good for you. You know, I, I don't know. That, that's to your point. I definitely take some issue with, with that entire mindset. Hold your wrist up. Are you wearing your Rolex? Oh, no Rolex. <laughs> no, no, no watches today. But, you know, I, and, and I just said this this week and I say it all the time. You know, it's a sick world because, you know, if I spend a thousand bucks on something or five hundred dollars or shit, a hundred dollars on something and, you know, it happens all the time. And I just it, it it bothers me because I would like to be in a situation and I'm sure everybody would like I would like to be able to just say. Man, everybody on earth and, oh, I'm going to sound like a socialist and, oh, you know, whatever. But, like, it's a fucking sick world when I can have a Rolex and there's people that are hungry in the world. Like, really, it's a sick fucking place. And yes. it, it doesn't make me happy to, 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 you know, I've never bought anything in my life more than a 100 bucks where it didn't occur to me that there's thousands of people that don't have it very good. But what do you do? Like, you can't start a worldwide government. It's not like, you know, if you wanted to give, you know poor folks in Sudan, a trillion dollars, I'm sure drug Lords would somehow intercept it. Like it's, right. it's just really hard because you would like to live in a world where, you know, again, there's some equity and some fairness and folks don't go hungry. Like it is bullshit that people have yachts and, you know, kids are starving to death. I don't know. It's to, yeah. It is the socialist in each of us. And, you know, I have learned that as my life has progressed, there's, it's a dead end with most people to have that discussion, but you know, and again, sure. I don't begrudge the yacht. Fantastic. But how, how can it be that? I don't know what the number is. I don't even think it's as many as a hundred. It may be 20 people in America have as much accumulated wealth as like the bottom 150 million, you yeah. know, 
There's 350 billion, or I'm sorry, 350 million people roughly in America and like 20 of the fucking people, you know, it's Gates and it's, and it's Bezos and it's Musk. I guess he's considered, he may not be considered American, Warren Buffett, so forth, um, have an aggregate wealth equal to like the bottom 100, 150 million fucking people in America, Tris, then that, that just doesn't seem, you know, on its face, that's just a little twisted. Yeah, to that end. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking sort of globally, but yeah, even in this country, like it's, you know, I'm sure there's children in this country that are starving to death or, you know, don't certainly have access to, to decent health care and, and, you know, good mental health care and, and different things that you would think in the richest, greatest country in all the history of the world would be things that, that wouldn't be such a luxury. So. I don't know, man. I I love this country. I genuinely do. I, I really think it's I the best too. country on earth. I'll do but too. but it is sad that you know there's a whole lot more focus on personal gain and personal wealth than well, like how can we fix this country and this world? I you know I hate it about myself, but then you just kind of feel like well, there's nothing I can do. I'm going to go buy a fucking Porsche, right? You know, right, which is it's right. a dude, what it's, can I do other than spend some money? Yeah, that's right. No, no, it's douchebaggery. It just, it feels like, you know, you kind of feel hopeless with it. Like everything you do is going to be a drop in the bucket. I mean, I'm like you, I give money, you know, at Christmas time and you, you go out and you do the angel trees and, and you, you know, you try to help some kids out and, you know, and you donate when the, with the guys are ringing the bells and, you know, it just never feels like enough. And it, yeah, I don't know. Sure. It's, it's, well, it's just, you wish there was an easier way to change the world, I guess, which is sad that you can't. I always thought one of the overriding themes that came out of Hurricane <laughs> that came out of hurricane Katrina was that glimpse into third world poverty that we ignore you and you and I ignore too. We don't have to put this at the feet of Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos. Sure. Tristan Reynolds and Ray white. We, yeah, we give a little bit of money here and there and drop some change in salvation army bucket and walk away feeling good. But you know, there's third world poverty right here in America and, and Katrina hurricane Katrina exposed that we, we don't see that. And, and Oh, by the way, I can recall Two days prior to Hurricane Katrina, just a line going up. I think that's I five over Lake Pontchartrain, leaving New Orleans, car after car after car, almost exclusively filled with people that look like you and me, and the people that don't look like you and me uh, left behind in New Orleans. And when that hurricane hit, it exposed that thir literal third world poverty. It was like we were looking at Haiti for Christ's sake. And how many of those pockets are there in America? Quite a few, but we don't spend much time thinking about them. You know, right. And, and to that end in, in Appalachia, I mean, they may not look like right. the folks in, right. in Louisiana did at, at Hurricane Katrina. And, you know, I, I think we when we talk a lot about these these abortion laws and things that are just when when abortion is controlled by the states and you have the red states that are going to have very strict abortion laws and the blue states with more liberal abortion laws are just so much going to affect poor people, just like everything drastically affects poor people because where sure. poor people live in the flood zone in the fire zone like in the places right. that are bad right so you know and, and it just it's sad because you know where's the the worst air quality the worst air quality is where the poor people are where's the right. landfill the landfill is where the poor people are so yeah there's just so much inequity even in this country that it's just uh it, it's fascinating and sad and and can get overwhelming when you you know when you worry about that because it's yeah it no, does feel right and it does it's not like there are a lot of you know and i i know mm -hmm. I, I don't disagree that there's a lot of good politicians but it does feel like not a lot gets done in regards to that i mean doesn't michigan still has uh bad drinking water and uh shit wherever went in flint so went. like that's been what eight nine years ago now yeah but nothing gets done man because it's poor people and not to sound right. like bernie sanders and you okay. know or some big you know, idealist. I mean, I get how it sounds, but I don't know. It is sad. You do wish there was more to be done and some equity in this world instead of just the rich keep getting richer and, you know, the poor keep getting poorer and the middle class keeps shrinking. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's exactly right. Well, I hope that uh, this episode didn't sound too bad in the beginning part. I think George, he was an interesting guest. Um, and and we thank him for coming on. You want to thank sponsors? Oh man, yeah, yeah. Also, would like to thank George. What a super friendly, nice guy. And uh, he was. You know, and what, what a, what a and legacy. Looking forward to going to that restaurant for sure. Definitely. And yeah, check out some of his his comic stuff on on uh, the heavy metal brand. Just 
un- unbelievable. I've, I've seen a bit of it, but I, w- I would like to kind of make it a thing to kind of now go and buy and, and really get into that just, uh, you know, as kind of an homage and a thank you to him because it, it's so, so cool. So, yeah, I'd like to thank We Do Epoxy. Uh, Tony such a been such a great supporter for us, and we appreciate him and everything he adds to the show. Uh, Dad's Flooring, um, who has moved into the old Berea Pond location, which is kind of my fault, and it, it cost me some advertising dollars, but I still love those all those guys no matter what. And uh, Troy, of course, we couldn't do the show without Troy at Front Porch Studios, uh, Nate at Stove Leg Media, and uh, of course the Rational Boomer Podcast, and. I've been talking to um, Just Love Coffee, Realty World Adams and Associates here in town are both sort of uh, considering a foray into uh, some podcast sponsorship over the oh, next nice. little while. So, yeah, hopefully uh, we'll, we'll get the, the friendly folks at, uh, at Realty World Adams and Just Love Coffee, and you'll hear their commercials coming up real soon. So, Oh, uh, that we, would be very cool. Yes, yeah, so we appreciate those guys, even just for considering it, and, of course, our, our longtime sponsors that – it would just mean the world. We appreciate that that you guys uh, like what we do enough to be a part of it. You got any comedy? I Ray, sometimes I'm I'm iffy on the the guest shows because I don't want to make uh, you know celebrities have to listen to my really awful comedy. So I didn't put anything together, but I uh, was hoping maybe you had a good joke for us. Well, I don't know if it's a good joke, but it's a dad's flooring dad joke. You know, Tristan, I've never hunted bear, but I have been fishing in shorts. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> oh, man. What do you get if you cross a cat with a parrot? Ooh, a cat with a parrot. I, I don't a know. Cat. Oh, very nice. You know why the rooster ran away? I do not. He was chicken. <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> pretty all right, good. I, I, I'm just going to read this one. I'm not sure I even. All right. So two botanists. What's a botanist? Plants? Yeah, plants. Plants? All right. So two botanists were working on a research project together. In all seriousness, one turned to the other and said, you know, this job may not be the most popular, but I do. Oh, the most popular, but I do (laughs) love it. The other botanist stared blankly at the first and didn't respond. The first one continued, if you're not a fan of tree puns, you can leave me alone. Maybe they're just (laughs) okey, okey dope to say some people, but I firmly believe my jokes are quality the other botanist walked away without saying a word all right so on that note and here you go ray well while you were telling those i thought in honor of uh, mr george c romero i just googled zombie jokes oh, I'm, nice. I'm gonna just tell the first jo- zombie joke that that pops up Perfect. let's see uh what do you call a zombie that cooks stir fry Dead what? man, dead man walking. Dead man walking. Walking, yeah. <laughs> All right. And, uh, dead man. There you go. Got to go one more. One more. How do zombies, or what do zombies consult to find out their future? Uh, don't know. Horoscopes. Horror. Uh, you know, I was going to say horror. Yeah, that was, that was probably good. We'll yeah, I was, was actually on the tip of my tongue, but nice. that's fun. All right, Ray. Well, let's uh, let's let's get Troy in edit mode and uh, <laughs> get this thing dropped. Sounds great, my friend. Thanks, Tristan. See you next week. Good seeing you, Ray. Take care. Bye. Hello. According to our research, you like podcasts. Well, if you have a passion, mission, or story, you should have your own podcast. And I have a resource you might be interested in. Go to frontporchstudios.com slash products and services. You'll see how Front Porch Studios can help you enter the world of podcasting. Again, that's frontporchstudios.com slash products and services. Thank you for your time. Goodbye.